I want to ask you a question this morning. A question I don't want you to think about what your neighbor is thinking about, but you very specifically, and the question is quite simple, and it's this. Do you have hope in tomorrow? Do you have hope in tomorrow? When you look to the future, do you see a world of hope before you? Does that thinking bring forth joy in your life? Because for many of us, tomorrow means the same as today. The same trouble, the same pain, the same hurts, the same issues, the same deadlines. And for many, future before us seems to be another day like yesterday. One where we find no hope at all. A recent Gallup poll said that Americans, about 65% of all Americans, struggle with having hope for tomorrow. And this seems to be no surprise. The daily headlines seem to worsen. Families are losing their homes. Children are going hungry. The stock market seems to go up for a while and then fall down and then up again and then down. Who can understand it? Millions in our nation have lost their jobs. And the list goes on and on. Who can have hope in our world? Everywhere we turn, families are scared wondering what they should do and where they should go. They wonder if bank bailouts will work, if the stimulus bill will finally fix this economy. Will the Congress be able to pass a debt ceiling issue that's looming? Will there be a job for tomorrow? Will children, with children to care for and families to take care of, it's only natural for us to worry. And in the world that we live in, with all of its terrorism, with all of its strife, it is hard to be a people who are able to have any hope at all. Now you say, Tim, of course the world would have no hope. It doesn't have Jesus. According to the Barna Group just a couple of years ago, it said the following about us as evangelical Christians. 58% of evangelical Christians struggle with the issue of hope. I wonder why that's the case. And then I began to think about my own struggles of hope in my life. Is living like Christ going to help change the world as God said it was going to? Will faith in my God be as productive as my God says it would be? Will God in the end return, his son Jesus Christ return as he said he would? Is God trustworthy enough to accomplish what concerns me today? No Christian is immune from the feeling of a lack of hope. Dr. Carl Menninger called hope the following. He said it was the major weapon against suicidal impulse. He said hope was an adventure of going forward on a confident search for a rewarding life. Let me repeat that. Hope was an adventure of going forward on a confident search for a rewarding life. Now, the secular world may identify hope as that, but I can assure you that the only way you and I will find hope is as we embark forward on a confident search for the living and almighty God. So where are we in this world to find hope? It's found in God. It's not found in politics, a job, or riches, or even in a life of ease or prosperity. The only place it can be found is in God and his working out his purposes in our lives. On the screen is a quote from Chuck Colson who addressed uh, a group at Congress back in the 1990s and he said this about hope. Where is the hope? I meet millions of people who feel demoralized by the decay around us. The hope of, that each of us has is not in who governs us, or what laws we pass, or what great things we do as a nation. But our hope is in the power of God working through the hearts of people. And that's where our hope is in this country, and that's where our hope is in life. Maybe today you've come and you have no hope. I am here to assert this morning, based on the power of God's honest truth found in the Scriptures, that hope is to be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, as we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we no longer have to search for hope in this world. 
In fact, Peter says when we come to know Jesus, we are born into a living hope. A hope that changes and revolutionizes the way that we live. It makes life worth living. It makes looking at even the most difficult of days look bright. I know all of us will have days, weeks, even months or years where all hope will grow dim. And if we wonder at times, is it worth all living for? Whether it's people, maybe you've got people in your life that have taken your hope away. Maybe it's your circumstances, maybe financial or something within your family that causes you to lack hope. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's spiritual concerns that they are. Whatever they are, these things strive to rob us of our hope. And so where are we to turn? We're to turn to God. And more importantly, this morning, we look to what God has to say about this hope in Psalm 16. Because Psalm 16 stands before us in a world of hopelessness, in a world of care, in a world of trouble, and it tells us the following, the best is yet to come. Do you believe that as a child of God this morning? That your best days are ahead of you? That God has plans for you? Plans to move you in a direction that works and and interacts with him in such intimate ways? That no matter what comes your way, you will know that you are blessed. As we look at this text this morning, I want to examine a couple things. So look to your text in Psalm 16. First of all, at the beginning of the text, in fact, even at the top of that, we see Psalm 16, a midtum of David. We know this is a psalm of David. We know who David is. We've explored him many times from this pulpit. But what about this inscription, a midcom? What is that? It's some sort of inscription, but we don't know what it is. It's an untranslatable word. Some have believed that it means to be a song. Still others say it is something that is uh, to distinguish or designate a set of phrases that are precious. Maybe because it was an inscription on some sort of uh, sculpture or stone of remembrance. We don't know for sure. But I would have to agree with Martin Luther, who called this a golden psalm. Spurgeon, the great preacher of England, called it the great balm and salve for a despairing people. Likewise, we are not told the time or the events that brought forth this psalm. There's no timing sequence that is given. We don't know if David's a young man or an old man, whether he's running for his life or he's in ease. We don't know. But I can assure you of the following. It is an important truth at all times in our life because who among us isn't in need of a dose of healthy hope this morning? So let's go ahead and look to this text. Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's word as we look to this text this morning. Psalm 16 says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out, I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your joy, with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you, and we come to you in a world of chaos. Lord, in the last couple weeks, we have seen terrorist attacks in Norway. We have seen uh, great times of drought in our own country. Lord, we have seen trouble in our political system. 
Lord, there seems to be a waging of wars all over the world. The world seems to be in a place of chaos and conflict. Lord, where are we to turn to for hope? Father, as your followers, we are constantly tempted to look to our pocketbooks. Father, we are tempted to look at our prosperity, to our jobs, to even the security of a family. But Father, today we are reminded this morning that our hope is found in you. Whatever our troubles may be, and there are a myriad of troubles as we enter into a place like this, in in this size of a group of people, and as different and as numerous as they are, we are reminded that the only place we can turn to is you. So Father, just as David said, let us not go to the world looking for the world's answers in the gods of this place, but let us put our attention Let us put our focus on you, the only one who can bring hope in a world of hopelessness. Teach us this morning how to do that. Teach us how you're doing that in our lives as your children today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. For us to find hope in a world of hopelessness, there are three things that I want to pull out of our text this morning. And the first one is, is if we want to find hope and we want to know that the best is yet to come, it takes looking back a little bit and remembering who God is. Remembering who God is. As you study verses 1 through 3 of our text, we are reminded about what God's agenda is for him and his people. And it revolves around who he is and what he's doing in the life of of his people. Now notice quickly this morning, first of all, that God is all about his personal presence. He's all about his personal presence. Notice verses 1 and 2. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you I have no good thing. Now, you may say, Tim, after reading that, where do you get anything about God's personal presence in the text. Well, it's not seen in the English text, but it's made clear in the Hebrew what it was originally written in. Let me share some thoughts with you. What David does is something that the psalmists do very often, and that is change up the names of God. Now, we have a couple names for God, God, Lord, uh, Father, maybe we might use. And when the writers put this together, they were always wanting to make sure that the name of God was very specific to what they were wanting to address. And so David, fully aware of the majesty and power of God, first of all speaks of God, Elohim, the God who presides over all of creation, a title that speaks of his supremacy above all other things and his great power and strength. He then moves on to the word Lord. And he says in that first reference to Lord, speaking of uh, the personal Jehovah God. So he goes from this great God who is overseeing all of creation, now to this God who is not some far-off God, who this creator who has created all of creation and then left it to be by itself. No, the God that David is proclaiming and praising is a God who has made a covenant with his people, who loves them, who cares for them, who is intimately involved and engaged in the hearts and minds of his people even down to the most daily of activities. He then moves to the perfect presence of Adonai. The third use there, you are my Lord, you are my Adonai. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Adonai is our Lord. He is our King. He is the one real and true authority in our lives. David cannot help but be overwhelmed by the thought of the God who is is at all times with him, surrounding him with blessings, surrounding him with goodness. He is overwhelmed by his thought of God. And I have to ask us this morning, how overwhelmed are we of who God is in our lives? How overwhelmed are we that we would stop and take notice to the greatness of God in our lives? 
David cannot help but be overwhelmed. He has seen God's love, God's protection, his wisdom, and his strength, not just in his life, but in the life of his friends, even in the lives of the enemies of God and how God has allowed them to have their place amongst humanity and to even provide for them, even though they curse him and fight against him. Folks, in our busyness, we must be like David, who pursued a knowledge of of God. And some of us will say, well, I'm too busy. Too busy for the God of this universe? Some of you say, but, but it's too hard. A God who has revealed himself that even children can know and understand that he's too hard to know. The distractions and the trials of this world may try to steal our hope But as we see God in all his glory, what he becomes in the midst of trials, in the midst of our struggles, is he becomes a lighthouse on the beach or the shore of our lives that points the picture. It sends us the right direction so that we are able to reclaim the hope that we have. It begins with us knowing who God is. Notice, secondly, God is all about his people. Verse 3. As for the saints who are in the land, they are glorious ones in whom is all my delight. I wonder when David was writing this text, after thinking of the greatness of God, he moves to the greatness, if you will, of the people of God. And one of the reasons why David has hope is that there were godly men and women who surrounded David I'm sure his thoughts went right away to his beloved friend Jonathan and to the mighty men who served alongside David. You remember the story of David and his mighty men? King Saul is chasing after David, pursuing after his life. And there are these mighty men who side with David and say, we'll go with you, we'll protect you, we will stand shoulder to shoulder with you. And I want you to understand something this morning about that particular part of Israel's history. Those men weren't hunted down by Saul. Only David was. And so those mighty men, those men who sided with David, left lives of peace and tranquility and went and stood shoulder to shoulder with David in his storm. Because if they were standing with David when Saul found them, they would surely be put to death. The good friends, the good people of the Lord that David is proclaiming are men and women who will go and in their place of peace and tranquility will stand with you, put your arm around you, and they will stand with you in the most troubling of circumstances. Even though it is sunny and beautiful where they live, they are willing to go to the greatest of storms for you in that moment of crisis that you have. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? Who doesn't look at at people far away and say, that's too bad that they're struggling with those things. But in the moments when you hear of a friend or a loved one who is struggling, that you go and say, even though it may mean more trouble for me, more pain for me, more issues for me, I am willing to go and be the friend that God has called me to be. I can't tell you how many times the glorious ones that are spoken about in Psalm have been a part of my life. Where brothers and sisters in Christ have come in my life and my family's life in our hour of need to pray over us, to love on us, and to stand with us, to leave their places of tranquility and peace and come into our storm and to say we're here. You see, friends are a great thing because they remind us of the greatness of God when we don't see God at all. Our problems so many times fog up our ability to see the God for who, our God for who he is. And so a friend comes and he reminds us and he says, brother or sister, though you are skewed in your understanding of God because your circumstances have you thinking so backwards right now, let me tell you how great and wonderful our God is. One of the things I've learned as a young pastor is that this is one of the most important roles that elders have in a church. 
The job of the elder isn't to be Mr. Counselor. The job of the elder isn't just to kiss boo-boos and send people on their way. But the job of the elder is to remind people over and over again about who God is and to point them in the direction when troubles and circumstances come, when, when people can't see God, the elders and leaders of this church are to say, look, God is right there. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. He's got wonderful and great plans for you. So look to your problems and say there's hope for tomorrow. We need people like that, and we need to be a people like that. But I would be remiss if I did not add that this cannot happen in a church that lacks fellowship. In a church where church attendance is so sporadic that we come and go and we're two ships sailing in the sea, just kind of waving to each other as we pass by. But this kind of fellowship, this kind of love, this kind of true sincerity will be found as we invest in one another the time that is needed because all of us will need a friend in that time of life where we lose hope. David says, I've got them. He says, they are the glorious ones in whom I take delight. He didn't take these friendships for granted and neither should we. Notice thirdly, God is all about his principles. In verse four, he says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. I wonder if David was looking across the countryside as as he had as a shepherd, as a king, if he had not noticed the other gods of the foreign lands, even some of the gods that were being pursued by his own people. And I wonder if he began to take toll at each of them and saying, I see them, and I recognize there are many different competitors to the great God whom I serve. And I wonder if David stops and says, while they look wonderful, while they are appealing, the gods of this world are nothing. In fact, it is articulated in Psalm 71, a psalm that we'll be looking at later in this summer, where David says, who is like our God? As if he looks at all of the competition and he says, nobody competes. Nobody contends against the greatness of our God. So I'm not going to go after those things. I'm not going to pursue their practices. I'm not going to speak of them. Because my God is so great. My God is so wonderful that he puts all other gods in his dust. Can you say that this morning? Can you say that there is no God of this world, small g, God of this world, that can compare to the greatness of the God whom you serve? Have you done that comparison? You see, so many of us find ourselves shopping when it comes to God. And we look, as I look in the ads, at at the different competitors uh, of stores and, and selling the same product, And one will say, hey, we'll give you this, and we'll give you that, and here's this rebate, and here's this coupon. And we say, well, I'm going to go there. I'm going to buy it there because this God, this, this, this store, I'm sorry, offers more than that store does. And so we do that, and some of us do our Christianity that way. We look, and, and we shop around, and we see the differences And we say, based on a human perspective, well, this God has a lot more to offer because this God's not going to get into my face. It's not going to tell me what to do. It's not going to require as much. And so I'll go with this God. But then we come to church on Sunday and we say, but but i got to stay true to my God here. And we go back and forth. David says, there can't be compromise. You can't live that way. You must once and for all make a decision and understand fully that as you've looked at the world, And it's hopelessness that you have learned that the sorrows of those who follow after other gods will only increase. I needed to learn this as a teenager. Because my view of sinners when I was a teenager and a young person was, why is it that the sinners get all the fun? Why is it that the sinners have all the luck? Why is it that with sinners, everything seems to go well? David says, Tim, don't forget that things will not go well for those who pursue other gods. 
Do you believe that this morning? Or have you bought into the lie of the devil that says that being an unbeliever, being out of the covenant love of God is a good thing? Oh, that we would never forget that truth, that being with God is better than anything in this world. David compares and he sees that only the sorrows will increase. As we explore the scriptures, we are reminded over and over again that God blesses the obedient and that disobedience will only bring trouble. For all this to happen, for us to sense God's personal presence, to be in fellowship with God's people and living out godly principles instead of pursuing the principles of this world involves us making our great God our supreme love and joy of our lives, pursuing him every day. I want you to think about it this way. Everything without God, let me say this correctly, everything without God is pathetically inferior to God without everything. Let me say that again. Everything without God is pathetically inferior to God without everything. Can you say, as the song Fernando Ortega sings, just give me Jesus? You can have all this world offers, just give me Jesus. What in your life do we need more than Jesus? This is what David says in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Can you say that this morning as a child of God? That the nearness in verse 28 of Psalm 73, that the nearness of God is all my good. It's all I need. Who needs the things that I have in this world? I don't. I need Jesus. I need God. Let's notice the second thing that brings us hope out of this text. And that is when we recognize what God is doing. Once we've remembered what God has done, who he's brought into our lives, we can then move to the present and say, what is God doing? Our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln, was once asked during the hardest times of the Civil War by his cabinet, during these incredible times, Mr. President, How can you have such hope in tomorrow? Lincoln replied that his hope in tomorrow is not based on starry-eyed dreams, but on the benevolence of a sovereign Lord who bestows upon him grace each and every day. The reason why we have hope is not because we just look into the future and say everything will be fine, everything will be wonderful. We have hope for tomorrow, brothers and sisters, because we serve an awesome God. A God who has loved us, a God who has cared for us, a God who says he'll never leave us or forsake us, a God who says that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So as we look at this, and we wonder all the torment that is going on in our world today. And we begin to ask the question, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? God says, don't worry about it. I'm doing a work. And notice where the work is taking place. He says in verse 5, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. I want you to know the first thing that God is doing right now is he's completing us. He's completing us. What David is declaring is that though his desire is to be a man after God's own heart, that even in his most extraordinary attempts to try to follow God, that each of us, including himself, will fall short of the glory of God. We can't do it on our own. We can't be good enough. We can't pursue holiness enough because we will all fall short of it. And that's why I'm so glad that God is there, that he sent his one and only son, Because if we're trying to achieve this on our own, we're going to fail. But David understood. He says, first of all, God, you have plans for me. I think of the words that Paul articulated in Philippians chapter 1 that says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to the day of completion. Do you know God's doing a work in your life even if you don't recognize it? 
I look back in my life and I sit there and say, God, man, man, the world seemed incredibly upside down to me as a young man, but you were doing a work and you had every day planned before I was born. And I see it. I see how you are changing me, how you're renewing me, how you're making me more like your son. God has assigned that to us as believers. He doesn't say, well, I'll save you and then you're on your own. He doesn't say, well, I'll take care of your sin issue and then that whole sanctification issue is, is going to be done by yourself. No. God says, I began the work in you and I'll make sure you get to the finish line. He's going to get us there. He's going to help us to see the way of righteousness. It says here that it's been assigned to us. In the Hebrew language, it depicts that both the portion and the cup are fully complete. What I want you to know is that the plans that God has for us, they're done. God has willed for them to take place and they are done. And now the only task that we have is to walk in obedience to them and to live in the light of that truth. And so if God has figured everything out, And God has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us. If he has began a good work in us and is going to bring it to completion, then why is it that we as believers have no hope? If God has said, I got it all figured out, it's I can see the whole thing, Tim. You're going to die at the ripe old age of 173 years of age, and every day I'm going to be there, then why do I worry about the bill sitting on my counter? Why do I worry about what I will eat or drink tomorrow? If God is for us, who can be against us? That is where we find our hope. Secondly, God brings forth our certainty. Verse 5, you have made my lot secure. In essence, what David is saying is that you take care of the circumstances of life. How could David doubt that? David once found himself standing before wild animals as a shepherd boy. And God was there. How could David forget the idea of standing or the thought of standing before a nine-foot man named Goliath? How could he forget that? And in that moment, God was there. How could David forget running away from the king of Israel, Saul, who was chasing after him? And time after time, God was there. How could David forget? That though he had sinned so grievously with Bathsheba and killing her husband, God was there with his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. You see, the reason why God does all of those things is to bring forth our certainty. What can we do that God won't be there for us? What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Does that mean we can grieve the Spirit? Absolutely. But we can never out-sin our ways or out-sin in our ways that surpass the love of God. We can never be in a situation in a trial that God isn't there. I've said time and time out that every trial that we face, every trouble that comes our way passes across the desk of God for approval. There's not a problem that you're facing that God looks down and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know Tim and Amanda were going to struggle with that. Where did that come from? If that was the case, I would have no hope. But when the bad, new, bad, bad news comes on a random Tuesday, I can know that my God has said, hey, it's going to get hot in here, but I'm with you. And I've allowed this trouble to come. And I've stamped approved on there. The devil can't mess with you, Tim, until I stamp approved. The world can't mess with you until I've stamped approved. And God, who is greater and wiser than I am, says that I should consider it joy when those troubles come. Not sit there and say, woe is me. We've got a God who approves the things. And he says it's for our good. How that brings forth our certainty We never have to wonder why we're struggling and going through trials. Verse 6 says the Lord is providing for our contentment. Verse 16, 6, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful 
inheritance. Here's a statement that all Christians should be able to say. Even in the worst of times, even when trouble comes, that God has been very, very good to me. I remember Sammy Sosa used to say that about baseball. It was very, very good to me. We should be able to say that about our God. God has been very, very good to me. If you can't say that, then you are so focused in on your problems that you are missing the great blessing that is found in Almighty God. Because when we're able to say God is good to me, then we're able to say I am content. We're able to say that I have a good shepherd who loves me, his sheep. The world, as well as many here, look to find their contentment, look to find their hope in the things of this world and what the stuff of this world offers. Yet here's a man who had everything. He, had, he was a king who had fame and fortune. He had everything he could have ever wanted. But we know later in his life, much of it would be taken away. His own children would pursue him out of hatred. His kingdom would be given to one of his sons and he would find himself running in many ways for his life. And yet David is able to say, God, you are too good, more than I could ever imagine. Let me give you some reasons why we should say God is too good for us. He's been too good to us. Titus 3, 5 says that not according to our righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We were his enemies. We hated God. And God said, in return to your hatred and animosity and anger, I will give grace and mercy. God, you've been too good to us. By being sinners, he saves us. And Ephesians 1, 3 says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing under heaven. Did he have to do it? No, but God, you are so good to us. He's given us his word that leads and guides us to everything that pertains to life and godliness. He could have left us on our own and said, you figure out this holiness thing. But God, who is so very good to us, has given us that. He tells us that even in the trials and circumstances of life that we can cast all our anxiety on him because he cares for us. God, you are so good to us. He's given us a body of believers friends, brothers and sisters in arms that we can come together and worship. We don't have to do this thing on our own. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to do the Christian life on our own? And if we don't ever think about that, we would never see the great prize that is found in having a people like yourself in my life. God is so very good to us. He has saved us. He is sanctifying us, and one day we will stand before him, and he will say to us, come in to a place of utter perfection where there is no sorrow, there is no pain. We sang about it this morning. And in that moment, we will rise up on eagle's wings. God, you have been so very good to us. Can we say, whether in the good or the bad, in plenty or in want, whether God gives or takes away, that we would be able to say today, blessed be the name of the Lord. Can you amen that this morning? God has been so good to us. Next, I want you to see that God's counseling us towards righteousness. Just a couple other things, and I'll close this morning. He says in verse 7, I will praise the Lord who counsels me at, even at, my, at night. My, ah, I'm having a hard time today. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. What David is saying is that the counsel of God runs deep. Our translations say heart or mind. Literally in the Hebrew language, it is down to your kidneys. I don't know why David said that. I don't know why he, what he meant by that, if there's something that has to do with the counsel of God and, and our kidneys, but most commentators believe that what David is saying is it goes down to the very depths of who I am. The counsel of God is something that runs so very deep. Now let me tell you, as I look at that text, I'm reminded of something so very dysfunctional in my life. You say, one thing, Tim, there are many things that are dysfunctional with you. The one major dysfunction in my life 
is that I hate reading directions. Not directions on a map per se, but directions when it comes to assembling a certain thing. I know they're there, but I look at them as a hindrance. And so the three most dreadful words to me are some assembly required. So what do I do? I rip open the box and I want to go on my merry way to put together the certain item that's before me and to put it together without any help from anybody else. And as I'm working to put it together, it doesn't look like it's supposed to as the box says it is. And so I grow frustrated. I grow angry. And then my lovely wife will come and what will she say? Have you read the instructions? Out of my patience and my long suffering, I do not retort back to her. But I very frustratingly grab the instructions and I begin to look at how the creator designed the product and how it was to be put together. You see, some of us are like me when it comes to putting things together with our lives. You see, some of us want to just get to life and anybody telling us how to live life, man, get out of my way, let me do it my way until we get to our lives and our lives don't look like what the Word of God says it's supposed to. And we're not feeling the joy, we're not feeling the contentment and the great peace that comes. And we say, but God, you, you said it was supposed to look like this and God looks at us and he says, but you're not following my counsel. The counsel of my words and my ways have not gone deep into your life down to your kidneys. They haven't gotten there, and until they get there, you're not going to see what you hope for in this life because you're trying to live life without me. You say, but life is tough. There's a lot of big decisions. That's why I love this counsel. It says that it takes place both day and night. It's there 24 hours a day. The book of James reiterates this when it says in James 1.5, if any of us lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. What area do you find yourself troubled in? Do you find yourself vexed? Do you find yourself heavy laden? What things are preoccupying your mind today? Give them to God. Give them to God because the final thing we see is that God will empower us with his courage. Psalm 16, 8, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. What a powerful statement David makes. He says, with God at our side, the right side speaks of one who defends and one who is an advocate on our behalf. And this is the role of God in the life of the Christian. He is on our side. He is our advocate. He is the one there who protects Therefore, we have the ability to withstand anything that comes our way. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as Christians we'll withstand whatever debt crisis takes place on August 2nd? That whatever the headlines say, that we'll withstand it, that we'll be victorious? That's the Christian hope. That is what Psalm 16 is all about. That we will have hope because God is on our side. And if God is on our side, then our tomorrow will be a very, very bright day. Because God has been with us since the beginning. Now we've looked at the past. We've looked at the present. I want to quickly look at the future. And that is we need to rejoice in what God will do. There's nothing like looking forward to something. A vacation, a certain event, a certain opportunity. And yet it's amazing that we'll endure great pain, great suffering to get to a bright and glorious future. There's no better way to illustrate that than for you ladies when it comes to pregnancy. A pregnancy is a difficult thing to say uh, as a man. I don't experience those things, but I've been told that. I've seen that in the life of my wife. And it only gets worse because as the nine months progresses, the pains only begin to begin. And anything discomfort that you may have felt in those first nine months all of a sudden become nothing in comparison to what's about to take place in labor. And during that time, as I saw my three children born, I saw a a shift of emotions for my wife, utter pain and agony, but then also the prospect of the future. And the amazing thing was, is as that baby emerged, in a couple of moments, even though my wife completely drained of all her energy, her focus was not on her pain. 
It was on what had come. And there are some of us who are enduring great pains, great struggles. And if we focus in on them, we will become undone. But if we focus in on what God is doing in them and what God will do for us in the future, that which is to come, we will look at that and say, it hurts. It's tough. But I'm willing to go through it. I'm amazed, ladies, that as much pain and suffering you endure in pregnancy, that we have a lot of multiple births here. I gotta be honest with you, if men had been given that, we'd say, forget it, one time, that's it. You're getting one kid out of me. I'm done. And I'm blown away that knowing the pain and the struggle that's going to come, and yet then I remember the reward that comes, the great reward of a child. And sometimes as Christians, we focus in on our today and never understanding our future. David looks at that. He says, and give me a couple minutes and we'll close this out. He says this, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. But why? Why is he so confident of tomorrow? Because he knows, first of all, his final resting place. He says, because in verse 10, you will not abandon me to the grave. The universal thing that all of us have to be worried about is death. And what does David say? You're not going to leave me there. I don't have to worry about even the grave because the grave is not my end. He would understand and know something that Paul would articulate later, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And it's because of that David articulates in in a short form what we need to understand that we do not grieve as the pagans grieve who do not have hope. Even death can't take our hope away. Even putting someone in the grave can't take that hope away. Because even amidst death we have hope because Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary put to death death once and for all. We're not to worry about it. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. Why? Because we can rejoice in Christ's resurrection. All of this, all of our hope, all of our peace, all of our contentment rises and falls on Jesus Christ. And notice what David prophetically says, which Peter addresses on the day of Pentecost. He says that speaking of Christ, you will not let your Holy One see decay. He says, the reason why I have hope for tomorrow is because you raised your son from the grave. Now, David doesn't know all the mechanics behind that, but he knows that Messiah is coming and that in some way, shape, or form, God is going to raise up this Messiah on that great day. And we've seen it. Because Jesus has endured the cross and scorned its shame, because he did it with the joy set before him, you and I can now fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And because of that, nothing will ever separate us, not even death from the love of Christ. Verse 11 says, you have made known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. If not by death, we can rejoice in Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. And it could be today. There's nothing in this world that is worth anything in comparison to the greatness of that which will come when Christ returns. Are you living in light of that? Are you comforting others with that coming? Are you being motivated that today may be the day of your death or today may be the day of Christ's return so that we may be motivated to share the hope of God with the world that needs hope? Hope is needed for our time because we face troubled events all around us and we need to see light at the end of the tunnel. As believers, there is a light. David articulates it in Psalm 16. C.S. Lewis said this about our issue with having an eternal focus compared to the temporal. He says, human beings are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink, lust, and ambition. 
That when infinite joy and hope are offered to us, we act like an ignorant child who would rather go on making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what is meant by offering us a holiday at the sea. We as humans are too easily pleased. Our infinite joy, Psalm 16 says, is offered us in Christ Jesus. So sell all that you have and get the field that contains the greatest treasure. And don't look back. Go after that treasure because it will impact the joy that we have. It will impact and change the way we live, the way we worship, the way we serve, the way we give, the way we witness when we understand the best is yet to come. To steal the words from a famous classic rock song, Christians, you ain't seen nothing yet. But baby, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's something that you're never going to forget because Christian, you ain't seen nothing yet. Take heart in the hope of the God who loves you and who is by your side even through the most difficult of circumstances and there you will learn the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the hope you give. And Lord, I know there are many today who are struggling. I know there are many today who are conflicted. I know many today who are longing after the things of this world because of their attractiveness. Lord, I pray that Psalm 16 would stop us in our tracks, that we would turn our eyes to you, that we would be reminded of what you've done for us, that you've always been with us, that your plans are good and right that you're with us right now and you're moving in us and you're changing us and you're making us more like your son, Jesus. You're giving us the counsel that we need. You're comforting us, us in our hour of need and you're leading us on to tomorrow. And Lord, even though we don't know of the future and the events that are before us, Lord, we don't even know what tomorrow might bring, that we know that if it's death, you are there with us because you were there with your son, Jesus. You did not let him see decay, nor will you leave us in the grave. Lord, let us not fear our own departure from this world through death, because we have a hope. We have an answer. And Lord, even if death is not for us, we recognize that your answer is there as well, that one day you will come back and you will change this world once and for all. And you will take away all the pain, all of the sorrow, all of the grief, because you are the great Prince of Peace. Lord, let us put our minds on that. Let us make our decisions based on that. Let us not worry about what a day might bring, but let us seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. And all the things that we worry about, all the things we wonder about, they will be added unto you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Now lead us from this place. Teach us your ways so that as the temptations come, we may be able to deal with them 